My name is Donald McRae. I'm a professor emeritus in the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. The topic of my lecture is Varieties of International Dispute Settlement from Litigation to Conciliation. The substantial development of international dispute settlement in the last half of the last century has resulted in a multiplicity of dispute settlement mechanisms and regimes. But th that leads to the question, how well do they function and what the alternatives may be? I'm going to look at dispute settlement that involves claims brought against states before an international tribunal, and I'll focus on judicial settlement, but I also want to look at a recent development in international conciliation. And in part, this is based on my own personal experience participating as counsel or adjudicator or conciliator in each of these processes. I'll start with the classic model of adjudication, which takes two forms the International Court of Justice and ad hoc arbitration between states. Secondly, I will look at the model of state-to-state -state dispute settlement developed under the Law of the Sea Convention and within the framework of the World Trade Organization. Third, I look at claims by foreign investors against states, which has its own form of adjudication, often referred to as ISDS. Finally, I look at conciliation, based on a recent conciliation between Timor-Leste and Australia, which took place under the Law of the Sea Treaty. Let me turn to the International Court of Justice and other ad hoc arbitration. The ICJ, of course, had its origin in ad hoc arbitration, going back as far as the Congress of Vienna and the attempts made in 1899 and 1907 peace conferences to encourage international arbitration. And this led to the creation of the Permanent Court of Arbitration and the subsequent opening of the Peace Palace in The Hague in 1913. But the Permanent Court of Arbitration was not a court. It was a forum for managing ad hoc arbitrations. And the first real court was the Permanent Court of International Justice set up under the League of Nations. Now, the ICJ, set up under the United Nations, was modeled on the PCIJ. Fifteen full-time judges, elected with geographic representation from around the world, with a formal procedure of written pleadings and an oral hearing. The court also has provision for judges ad hoc, judges nominated by each party to a dispute if it does not have a national judge sitting on the court. Now, the ICJ is characterized by a very formal procedure. Hearings take place in the Great Hall of Justice, gowned judges and counsel, each case, both sides bring numerous counsel who deliver formal presentations to the court, but there's little interaction between the court and counsel. Cases can take two to three years to resolve or even more. For a long period of time, the court had very few cases on its docket, but it is now an active court with currently 17 cases before it. Now, criticisms of the court have been continuing the length of time it takes for a dispute to be settled, the cost that it takes for a state to actually participate in proceedings, the formality of it would make that a kind of a diplomatic event. And in the past, the court seemed more politically divided, but it is not really seen in the same way today. And of course, one of the major problems is that the jurisdiction of the court is not compulsory. Both parties have to accept jurisdiction in some form, either under the optional clause of the statute, which allows for acceptance in advance, or for an ad hoc agreement or compromis to make, take the matter to the court. Now, in order to make itself attractive to states, 
And to get away from a 15-member tribunal, the court established chambers, a five-person court, but that's had limited success in attracting litigants. Let me turn then to ad hoc state-to-state -state arbitration. That has a longer history than the International Court of Justice that essentially involves two parties agreeing to take their dispute to an arbitral tribunal, often five, but maybe three members. In ad hoc arbitration, tribunal members are chosen by the parties, with some default mechanisms for circumstances where the parties cannot agree, for example, asking the president of the International Court of Justice to appoint a chair of the tribunal. The parties set up their own rules for the arbitration, and the arbitral tribunal follows what the parties have agreed in terms of written pleadings and oral hearing. In most cases, follow the ICJ model, two rounds of written pleadings and an oral hearing. Now, the parties do not really have to start from scratch in building an arbitration agreement because they can request the Permanent Court of Arbitration to act as a secretariat, and the Permanent Court has model arbitral set of rules that can be simply followed by the parties. And the PCA also provides for hearings and facilitates communication between the arbitrators. Now, ad hoc arbitration is, in a sense, somewhat more manageable than the International Court. Five individuals on the arbitral tribunal rather than 15 on the court. And there is less formality in ad hoc arbitration. But they also suffer from similar problems as the court. The cost of arbitration, the length of time, the enforcement process, which, of course, the ICJ suffers from an enforcement problem as well. Nominally, the matter can be taken to the Security Council. But ad hoc arbitration does not even have that option. It depends upon the agreement of the parties, not just to create the arbitration, but to enforce any awards that are given. Now, ad hoc arbitration is still very common today, although often provided for in particular multilateral treaties, such as the Law of the Sea Treaty, to which I'm now going to turn. I'm going to deal with the Law of the Sea Treaty and the WTO process in, in, in the sense of new institutional dispute settlement. Now, the Law of the Sea Treaty introduced a comprehensive dispute settlement system. At the core is the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, a 21-member court that's modeled to a large extent after the International Court of Justice. But parallel to the tribunal is a system of ad hoc arbitration. The provisions of the Law of the Sea Treaty relating to dispute settlement were essentially a compromise. States were given an option to settle their disputes by going to the ICJ, going to the tribunal, or going to ad hoc arbitration under what is known as Article 7 of the Law of the Sea uh, sorry, Annex 7 of the Law of the Sea Convention. Now, many states chose the arbitration option, but that is not, does not mean they're completely divorced from the Tribunal on the Law of the Sea. ITLAS, or the Tribunal on the Law of the Sea, has the power to order interim measures pending the creation or constitution of an ad hoc arbitral tribunal. So they are, to some extent, interlinked. Now, ITLAS and Annex 7 tribunals have resolved a substantial number of disputes over the Law of the Sea since the Law of the Sea Convention came into force, including, in particular, the prompt release of ships that have been uh, arrested. In a sense, ITLAS and Annex 7 tribunals are a kind of a microcosm 
there of what happens in international law generally. You have the International Court of Justice and ad hoc arbitration. In the Law of the Sea, for Law of the Sea Treaty, for Law of the Sea Matters, you have the Tribunal on the Law of the Sea and ad hoc arbitration. So just a specialized version of what exists uh, internationally. The models of dispute settlement are essentially the same. The 21-member court in the Tribunal on the Law of the Sea mirrors the problems of large member bodies such as the International Court with 15 members, although the chambers of the uh, of ITLOS, 5 to 11 judges, seem more attractive to states than the chambers of the International Court of Justice have been. So there's more recourse being made currently to chambers of the uh, ITLOS. Let me turn now to the World Trade Organization. And the World Trade Organization offers quite a different model of state-to-state -state litigation because it's based on a dispute settlement process, not of ad hoc arbitration, but the process that is, was established under the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which is a form of ad hoc arbitration, although in origin it had the dual role of arbitrating the dispute or try, and trying to get the parties to come to a compromise of the dispute. And it's a, but it is still a form of ad hoc arbitration, which focuses more on the arbitration idea now than on the idea of trying to get the parties together to settle a dispute. But it operates within the structure of a treaty system, ad hoc arbitration within a treaty system, and it has an appellate body to review decisions of the ad hoc arbitrators or panel members, as they're known in the World Trade Organization. Now, WTO dispute settlement has two distinct advantages over other forms of arbitration. Most other dispute settlement processes do not have what is central to the law of the WTO system. First of all, WTO system is compulsory. The jurisdiction of a WTO panel is not based on consent in any individual case as it is in the ICJ. And the only parallel, I suppose, is something I'm going to come on and talk to, which is compulsory conciliation under the Law of the Sea Treaty. But it's compulsory in the WTO. Once a WTO member lodges a complaint against another WTO member, the state against which the complaint has been made must participate in dispute settlement. And perhaps surprisingly, they always have. Although in other dispute settlement processes, there are examples where states, the responding state has refused to participate. That's happened in the International Court of Justice. It's happened in the Law of the Sea, Annex 7 uh, uh, tribunals. But this has never happened in WTO dispute settlement. The second advantage of WTO dispute settlement is that it has an enforcement mechanism. And one might add to that it has an appellate process and then the possibility of an enforcement mechanism. And as I mentioned, the appellate process is quite novel in that it doesn't exist in the same form anywhere in international law. But after the appellate process or after a panel process where that has not been appealed, WTO members that fail to comply with the decision of a panel or the appellate body can have retaliatory measures ordered against it. 
usually in the form of tariffs imposed on their goods. So in other words, when a state has achieved a decision before a WTO panel that is in its favor and the other party doesn't comply, that state can go to what is known as the dispute settlement body and ask for tariffs to be imposed on the state that has not complied. And there's a whole complex process of measuring what the level of retaliation should be, the possibility of appealing that. Uh, but in the end, it can get a decision compelling the other party, in a sense, trying to compel the other party to comply because tariffs will be imposed on their goods in the state uh, that has won the, uh, the claim. Now, whether that's an effective enforcement measure is debatable because a large state may be able to retaliate against a small state, but a small state can't retaliate effectively against a large state. But the fact that retaliation exists and could occur is often seen as an incentive uh, for states to comply with the decision of the panel or the appellate body. The WTO process also ensures that panels will be constituted. There's an obligation to constitute a panel after a second request has been made to the dispute settlement body. And although the parties are given an opportunity to agree on the membership of the panel, in the absence of agreement, the Director General of the WTO can appoint the panel members. And that's a practice that actually is becoming more and more frequent. The parties can't agree on the composition of a panel, and the Director General appoints the panel. But of course, once that panel is appointed, the process is binding, is obligatory, and the outcome is binding. WTO dispute settlement is in many respects the least formal of state-to-state -state adjudication. And I'm talking about really the form rather than the substance of it. Pleadings are all electronic, which can be compared with the substantial bound written volumes that are filed in a case before the International Court of Justice. Hearings are held in WTO committee rooms rather than in a formal courtroom. Moreover, the substantial, there is a substantial questioning of the parties by panels and by the appellate body during the oral hearings. Again, that is rather uncommon in other forms of state-to-state -state adjudication. Now, the WTO is also characterized by a substantial secretariat involvement with the, with the decision-making process. Panels are supported by a legal team from the WTO secretariat, often three or four lawyers, and questions have arisen about the extent to which an ad hoc process where the Secretariat has much more experience in dispute settlement than the many panel members have, whether the Secretariat can influence the outcome of a case or become the effective decision makers. And that's an issue which is essentially unique to the WTO system and has not arisen in the same way in other state-to-state -state processes, although it sometimes is referred to in the context of what I'll come on to shortly, investor-state dispute settlement. At the present time, the WTO dispute settlement process is under attack. Criticism of the appellate body has led to refusal by the United States to agree to replacements of the membership of the appellate body once the terms of existing members have been completed, and by the end of this year, there may no longer be a functioning WTO appellate body. 
The concerns have largely been those of the United States, and although other states do have concerns about WTO dispute settlement, they believe that these concerns can be dealt with without disrupting or destroying the process. But an institution like the WTO, which operates on consensus, a failure to get consensus on the appointment of new members of the appellate body means they cannot move forward on appointment of policeman members. Let me turn now to investor state dispute settlement. It's a different kind of litigation against states under bilateral investment treaties and other treaties dealing with investment, which allows foreign investors to bring claims against their host state. And investment treaties provide for bringing of such disputes before an international tribunal, generally but not exclusively, on the basis of rules set out in the, uh, the, uh, international, uh, the International Convention on the Settlement Investment Disputes, ICSID or alternatively, rules established by UNCITRAL, the United Nations Conference on International Trade Law. Now, investor-state dispute settlement is simply another form of ad hoc arbitration, except that it's between a private party, the investor, and the state. But the authority for it comes from a treaty entered into by the state of nationality of the investor and the state on which, in which an investment has been made. Now, investment disputes are frequently administered by ICSID or by the Permanent Court of Arbitration, the PCA, and other institutions such as the Hong Kong International Arbitration Center are also administering disputes. But their role is not as central to dispute settlement as it is in the case of the WTO Secretariat. But ISDS, Investor State Dispute Settlement, is a bit more like a WTO dispute settlement in terms of the informality of the process. Because it's ad hoc, the parties have to agree on the rules of procedure and the litigation process. Generally, each party appoints an arbitrator and they agree on a presiding arbitrator, that is, the parties agree, sometimes delegating it to the two appointed arbitrators to choose a chair and sometimes designating the Secretary-General of ICSID or the Secretary-General of the Permanent Court of Arbitration as the appointing authorities. And both these institutions have model rules that are followed, and the parties generally take those rules and simply modify them to uh, uh, meet their needs. Investor-state arbitration generally follows the usual model of state-to-state -state arbitration. Two rounds of written pleadings and an oral hearing. Hearings, again, lack the formality of the International Court of Justice or of ITLOS, and there's much more interaction between the parties and the tribunal in forms of questions throughout the process. Now, ISDS also has provisions for review of arbitral decisions. The exit annulment procedure allows for a review, or a limited review, and in, under UNCITRAL rules, there can be review by the domestic courts of the state of the seat of arbitration or the seat of the tribunal. Now, proposals for the creation of an appellate mechanism like that in the WTO are currently being discussed and even included in bilateral treaties, such as the recent Canada-European Union Agreement, which goes under the acronym of CETA. Yet, ISDS, International uh, Investor State Dispute Settlement, is also under attack. At root is the fact that, unlike most international judicial arbitral tribunals, where a losing state simply has to change a measure or withdraw legislation that's contrary to international law, 
A loss in ISDS involves the state in paying compensation, often in substantial amounts, to a foreign investor. And not surprisingly, the citizens of a state do not like seeing their state having to pay compensation to a foreign investor or to a, some foreign entity, particularly when the entity does not appear to have any corresponding obligations to the state. Criticisms of ISDS have ranged from opposition to the entire system, to demanding reforms of the process, focusing on who the arbitrators are, transparency, and the avoidance of conflict of interest. Current proposals for reform are addressing many of these issues. And the public perception of investor-state dispute settlement is exacerbated by the fact that the arbitrators who are well-paid are limited to a relatively small number of individuals, many of whom are professional arbitrators involved in, professional, in commercial arbitration, and lacking any substantial gender or national diversity. The classic model of investor-state arbitrator is a Western European or a North American male. Yet, with the exception of a few states, many states continue to engage in ISDS and to enter into treaties providing for such dispute settlement. And there are over 900 known cases so far, and they seem to be continuing to be filed. All of the processes for settling legal disputes that I've referred to have common elements. They involve judicial or arbitral bodies, whatever you call them and however they're set up, established permanently or ad hoc. They work within a framework of rules, governing the behavior of the parties and of the court or the tribunal. Regardless of their designation, they are in the form of a court, and they decide cases on the basis of international law, whether by interpretation of a treaty or application of customary international law. And the result is a determination based on the application of law. Generally, such a determination means that one party loses and one party wins, although mixed wins and losses are possible in the context of our case. And that leads me to turn to conciliation. And conciliation has been a mechanism for settling disputes that has been around as long as the history of adjudication has been around, but used much more infrequently. Many of the treaties providing for dispute settlement between states include conciliation as an option. Indeed, it's included in Article 33 of the United Nations Charter as a means for the peaceful settlement of disputes, but it simply has not been a popular form of dispute settlement. I want to talk about a recent example of conciliation, compulsory conciliation under the Law of the Sea Treaty between Timor-Leste and Australia over the delimitation of their maritime boundary. In April 2016, Timor-Leste invoked Article 298 of the Law of the Sea Treaty, which provides for compulsory conciliation where a party has elected not to include maritime boundaries within dispute settlement, but that negotiations between the parties to settle a maritime boundary have not been successful. So you've excluded maritime boundaries from your obligations of, of dispute settlement uh, under the Remember I mentioned the International Court, the Law of the Sea Tribunal, Annex 7 Tribunal. But you do have the obligation that if negotiations fail, the matter has to be taken to compulsory conciliation. And it had never been invoked until Timor-Leste did it in 2016. And the invocation of Article 298 by Timor-Leste was against the background of the recent independence of Timor-Leste in, in 2002 
an agreement entered into by the United Nations on behalf of Timor-Leste prior to its independence, providing for a joint petroleum development area in the Timor Sea between Timor-Leste and Australia, and a 2006 treaty between Australia and Timor-Leste for the management of the area which, which had the effect of postponing boundary delimitation for a period of 50 years. Now, Timor-Leste became unhappy with the 2006 agreement. It didn't see itself as getting the benefits of a resource when it's, when, that in its view was largely an area over which it would have jurisdiction if there was a maritime boundary. But the 2006 agreement was a barrier to the resolution of that boundary. No boundary limitation for 50 years from 2006. And relations between the two countries deteriorated over this issue. Attempts were made to litigate, litigate side issues, allegations of improper behavior, recriminations. Timor-Leste insisted that the settlement of the boundary was essential. Australia saw the relationship being managed adequately within the framework of the 2006 treaty and saw no reason to depart from what, it had, what had been agreed there. Finally, Timor-Leste considered that the only option to it was to invoke Article 298 and engage in compulsory conciliation. Take the chance, in other words. In accordance with that provision, in Annex 5 of the Law of the Sea Convention, a five-person tribunal was established. Two nominated by Timor-Leste, two by Australia, and a chair chosen by the four appointed members and agreed to by the parties. I was one of the members nominated by Australia. Now, since it was the first time that Article 298 had been invoked, there was really no practice to follow. And the really other conciliations that had taken place, there was very little about them, and sometimes they actually were confidential. There was no information available. The parties invited the Permanent Court of Arbitration to administer the conciliation. And working with the PCA and the parties, the Commission established rules of procedure for the conciliation, dealing with such matters as the process of conciliation, transparency, and confidentiality. But unlike a court's rules of procedure, this process was flexible, leaving it to the Commission to decide on process as it went and to adapt to the needs of the occasion. As a preliminary matter, Australia challenged the jurisdiction of the Commission arguing that the provision of the, 19, of the 2006 treaty governed, that is, postponed for, for 50 years, and that prevented any setting of a maritime boundary. So that meant the Commission had to engage in an arbitration on that issue. It wasn't a conciliation at that stage, it was a formal arbitration with parties presenting their legal arguments and the Commission making a decision. Eventually, the Commission decided that its jurisdiction derived from the Law of the Sea Convention, and not from the 2006 treaty. So what was provided for under the treaty was not something that bound and limited the scope of what the Conciliation Commission would, could do. Then in 2000, uh, October 2017, the parties reached an agreement on the maritime boundary, which was ultimately signed on the 6th of March 2018. And the Commission delivered its report on the 9th of May 2018. Well, what were the ingredients of this conciliation? First, the Commission decided to meet with the parties separately and did so through most of the conciliation until towards the very end. And that was supplemented by informal contacts uh, through the Chair. 
with the parties. Second, the Commission invited the parties to set out their legal positions on the maritime boundary, but only as background for the conciliation and not as a basis for any decision-making. The Commission was not going to rule on who was right or wrong in law. Third, the Commission proposed to the parties certain confidence-building measures, such as ending any outstanding litigation between them, or terminating outstanding litigation rather than ending it, and terminating the 2006 agreement, all of which were done, because the idea was that this would encourage them to make a commitment to reaching a solution. If the barriers that had caused problems in the past were gone, then it was possible for the parties to talk about reaching a conclusion. The fourth point is the Commission explored possible ways to resolve the maritime boundary with each of the parties. Remember, conducted separately. Issues paper, non-papers were put together, designed to get the parties' reactions to possible solutions, and these reactions would then sometimes be put to the other party. So there was an exchange between the parties through the medium of the Commission, not directly. But this process could only operate if there was one fundamental principle. No commitments were made, nothing was agreed, until everything was agreed. So there's no commitment made by either party until the final agreement. The Commission understood, or thought it understood, where the parties might go, and then were able to continue to issue papers and, 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 and request comments. But nothing was going to be agreed, and therefore each party was able to discuss what might be a possible outcome without feeling that it was going to be committed to that outcome. And, and the final point I'd make about the process, it became clear to the Commission that the boundary could not be resolved without a what was referred to as a development concept for the management of the key resources in the area. And the Commission worked with the parties to elaborate a development concept for what was known as the Greater Sunrise Resource Area. And this meant that the boundary was contingent on a joint arrangement for the management of this resource. And that put less pressure on the parties to insist on a line where there was a winner-take-all, because they knew that the result was in the context of a management regime for the key resource in the area. And so this development concept, what was known actually as the Greater Sunrise Area, would have the effect of helping resolve the issues between the parties on resource management and exploitation of the area. And the ultimate agreement between the parties, signed in March 2018, dealt with both the maritime boundary and the development arrangement for the resources of the Greater Sunrise Area. Now, why was the conciliation successful? Well, no one has a really good answer to that, but one can perhaps speculate. And the Commission does provide some of the speculation in its report. The first key issue, and it's nothing more than what I've already said, the first key issue was separate meetings. It gave each party the freedom to speak openly, because it was speaking to the Commission and not to the other party. And one of the problems in negotiations which is why they end up in litigation, the parties can't talk about compromises. They can only talk about their legal position. And therefore, they leave it to a court to decide their legal position. Whereas in the context of conciliation, the parties could talk to 
the commission, knowing that what they say, were saying was not going to be treated as a position, but a discussion of possible ways of dealing with the problem. The second point about the success of the commission, and I think it's impossible to, to uh, emphasize this enough. The parties at some point decided to invest in the process. Timor-Leste initiated the process not knowing what it would mean, because it had never been tried before. It was just that there was the only option left they saw. Australia obviously was reluctant to engage in the process, hence the jurisdictional challenge. It felt that the process was not appropriate for the resolution of the issue in the light of the treaty commitments that had been made. So sometime after the failure of the jurisdictional challenge, it became clear that the parties were more and more invested in getting a result. And the confidence building measures may have been an important part of that. Because once you've got rid of the 2006 treaty, and once you've got rid of the pesky litigation that was going on on various aspects of the administration of the Joint uh, Petroleum Development Area, where can the parties go if this, if this process fails? And I think both parties realized it was in their interest to get a result. And this was the best possible way of getting a result they saw at the time. So their decision to invest in the process is one of the key factors, in my view, uh, of uh, why it was a success. And the third point I'd make is that there was more than drawing a line at stake. If there was simply the drawing of a line, how can you get parties to compromise on the position that they would otherwise take being their perception of the legal position? But the fact that there was more at stake, there was a management regime for a common resource area that was at stake. It gave it much, made it much easier, easy is probably not the right word to say, but it made it more likely that the parties were able to find a way that would lead to a boundary that both would find acceptable in the context of a delimitation which included joint management, which maybe individually they would not have found acceptable if they were simply a delimitation on its own because they'd be looking at the joint development of the, or looking at the resource uh, all the time. So I think that the fact that there was more at stake than just the matter of drawing the light was an important consideration. Well, there's only three things, and I'm not sure that there are any more, but I'm sure other members of the commission might have different views uh, on this, and the parties may have different views. What are the advantages of conciliation over litigation? Well, there's the matter I mentioned earlier. There's no winner and loser, no loser. They both come up with a compromise position, which they're prepared to accept. And the compromise position and the comprehensive package was something you couldn't ask a court to do. You can't go to the ICJ and say, we want a line and want you to set out a management regime for the line. That's not what courts do. They answer the question, who's right in law, who's wrong in law? And giving a court a mandate that it really doesn't have and is not used to would not be very helpful. Well, why couldn't the parties, if it was simply a agreed solution, why couldn't they negotiate it by themselves? And I think that that's where conciliation comes in, the importance of conciliation comes in. The existence of a third party made it possible for the parties to 
talk to each other in a way they couldn't face to face. Other situations may be different, but I think in this situation, the parties had not, were not able to negotiate face to face. And so I, I would recall this, not perhaps conciliation, although it's the same thing, but really it was facilitated negotiation. The parties negotiated the solution through the medium of a conciliation commission. And that allowed them not to say things in a meeting with the other party would make the other party annoyed. And I'm talking about both sides could do that because everyone was very sensitive. This had been going on for some time. So, but it provided a third party who could facilitate and make the negotiations uh, possible. And of course, that may not be something that states want. I mean, if you want to resolve a dispute, but you don't want to take responsibility for resolving the dispute, send it to a court. The court resolves the dispute for you. And you domestically simply have to say, we're bound. Not that we gave away part of what we thought was ours. We're bound by it. Whereas the conciliation allowed the party to understand each other's position more fully, to see what possibilities would be, to, to analyze quite detail what the implications might be for either, either party. Uh, and that's a way, that's the advantage of conciliation, which doesn't exist in litigation, but that's not to say that litigation is not appropriate way. In many, many cases, litigation is exactly the appropriate way. So, difficult to generalize on the basis of one example of conciliation that fortunately turned out to uh, have a positive result. So we'll just have to wait and see whether states turn to this as a model for settlement of disputes, or whether they continue to favor the more traditional approach of litigation. Thank you.